Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 117th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Josh Patrick. Josh is the founder of Stage 2 Planning, an independent RAA in Burlington, Vermont, that specializes in working with small business owners. What's unique about Josh, though, is the way he's been able to leverage his own personal experiences as a small business owner before transitioning into financial planning as a second career to create a deeply specialized advice process for small business owners and command retainer fees in excess of $50,000 a year from his clients. In this episode, we talk in depth about exactly what Josh does to earn monthly retainer fees of four dollars to $5,000 per month from small business owners. The five core areas that he advises them on, including setting clear values and culture, becoming operationally irrelevant in your business, learning how to really delegate effectively, how to set up effective business systems, and how to divide up the profit of the business into cash flows for lifestyle, emergency funds, business growth, and a retirement plan. And the way he's made his expertise known through a combination of blogging, podcasting, and public speaking to create a steady flow of small business owners who seek him out and are willing to pay his fees for the value they perceive. We also talk about how many of these same business management principles map onto the business of being a financial advisor as well, where most financial advisors hit the ceiling themselves by failing to apply Josh's five principles of effective business. Josh's strategy for advisors to differentiate their firms while not making the firm too reliant on any one key employee or advisor. How advisors can create a guarantee that reduces a prospect's fear of signing on, but without running afoul of regulators. And how most experienced advisors could apply a version of the 80-20 rule to their own practices to make themselves significantly more financially successful while simultaneously lessening the demands of the business on themselves. And be certain to listen to the end, where Josh talks about the biggest challenge that he sees most financial advisors struggle with, the inability to delegate key tasks and client relationships, and how to overcome it by recognizing that in the end, even if team members make mistakes, there's still crucial learning opportunities, especially since the truth is that in the end, clients will rarely actually leave over a single mistake anyway. And whether they do or not is primarily a result of how the firm handles the mistake, not the mere fact that it happened in the first place. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Josh Patrick. Welcome, Josh Patrick, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate being here. I'm looking forward to the episode today because you have, I think, a, a very interesting I call it niche advisory business in our world of, of working with small business owners. And, and I feel like a lot of advisors in our industry say they work with small business owners, but you know, that was essentially how I started in the, in the life insurance world. But working with small business owners really just meant we'll sell you the life insurance for your buy-sell plan whenever you need that. Like that, was, <laughs> that was the angle. That was the way in. Like Didn't know anything about business consulting or how to make a business work or how to really sell it or exit or anything else. But like when you were ready to have that buy sell conversation, we had the coverage for you. Right. And you are very much immersed in 
actually talking to small business owners and running an advisory business around those conversations. And so I'm, I'm excited just to talk about what, what you're doing and what it looks like and maybe how it's a little bit different than what we traditionally do in financial planning firms. Sure. Yeah. My background is a little bit different than most people that get into an advisory business. This is a second career for me. Okay. My first career, I owned an operating business, so I grew from one employee to 90 employees. And it was in the wonderful world of vending in industrial food service. We fed people who worked in factories. And I started that business with twenty when I was 24 and made about every mistake that could possibly be made by a young business person, starting with mm-hmm. the worst thing that can ever happen to a 24-year-old going into business. Which is? I was really successful for my first two years. Oh, no. Just take all that, all that possible overconfidence bias and just pile it on. Oh, yes. And I did it in spades. And then reality, I mean, after that first two years, I thought my great success was because of my fabulous business skill. Right. The truth was I was just lucky. And then reality set in. And then two years later, I was on the precipice of bankruptcy because I didn't know how to read a cash flow statement. I have a degree in American history. And the degree in American history teaches you how to think critically, write critically, and read critically. It teaches you nothing about running a business. Right. Like, likewise, I, I enjoyed my liberal arts degree very much, but high on the critical thinking skills, low on the practical application. Correct. So I could read a profit and loss statement because that was sort of self-explanatory. I could sort of understand a balance sheet, but I had no idea how to read a cash flow statement. So because we were so successful, we were growing at a huge clip, and I bought over a million dollars in vending machines for three years in a row. Okay. Now, vending machines don't show up on a profit and loss statement. Right, because you're buying hardware, you're buying equipment. Right. It's a depreciation equipment, which goes into your balance sheet, and the actual expenditure for those vending machines, you have the cash coming in from borrowing and the cash going out for buying the vending machines. Well, the banks weren't funding 100% of those vending machines. So I didn't realize it, but my payables went from 30 to 45 to 60 to 90 to 120 days. And then the phone call started. And the phone calls essentially were, if you don't pay us in the week, we're shutting you off. And shutting me off would have put me out of business. So I had to learn to be very creative very quickly. And on top of that, during that period, I had an embezzlement going out with my controller. Oh. So when I say every mistake that could be made, I've made, I'm not kidding. (laughs) Oh, on top of that, I was arguably the most arrogant, worst boss that ever existed. I took personal responsibility for nothing. And I blamed my employees and I yelled at them almost every day because they were such idiots. Now, the truth was they weren't idiots. I was the idiot. But, but somehow the business survived <laughs> miraculously. Well, yeah, because, well, you know, if you own your own business and you have a personal guarantee and you're staring at a couple of million dollars in debt, you have to get creative pretty quickly. Otherwise, you're economically ruined. Right. I guess that's part of why they do that whole personal guarantee thing. Like you may or may not really be able to make good on it, but it is very motivating to not actually have to declare bankruptcy and prove the point. 
Right. And on top of that, I was in the same business as my father. And my father kept thinking I was a big shot and would tell me that every time he got a chance. Mm. <laughs> so just to build that that young male self-confidence thing even further. Yeah, well, he was he was kind of he's a different that's a different story altogether, but the truth was there was no way I was going to let my business go out so he could say I told you you're an idiot. Mm. And so it does make an interesting point of just the that distinction around business that I think we barely experience in the advisor world that like the just the difference between a profit and loss statement and a cash flow statement. Cause for most of our businesses, they're pretty much one in the same. We don't, they are. They we are. don't do a lot of finance transactions and capital transactions in the advisory world. Cause we get our revenue in, we pay our staff, it goes right to the P and L. We don't have receivables really, except for a quarter. And right. It comes in in one check from your, you know, your custodian or wherever you're coming from. You know, it's, it's the, the wealth management business is a really simple business. There aren't many moving pieces to it. When I compare wealth management to a blue collar business, like a construction company or a vending company or a manufacturing company, there are a zillion moving pieces that make the business much, much, much more complicated. Also, in wealth management, a 10-person firm can easily make a million and a half bucks a year. Right. And the profit margins in wealth management are obscene compared to the rest of the world. Right. You know, my best year in the vending business was 5.5% bottom line. Five and a half percent is the margin. Like that's that's awesome because you got the half. It wasn't just five percent; it was five and a half. I mean, my average year was two or three percent. Oh, I don't know. I only know of one vending company in the history of the vending business that had over a ten percent bottom line. Wow! So, and that's true for most distribution, most manufacturing, and most construction. It's they're just you know businesses. So to make a, a reason to make a million dollars, you got to be doing fifteen twenty million bucks a year. Whereas in the wealth management business, to make a million dollars, if you're doing three or four million dollars in top line, you're going to have at least a million dollars in your bottom line. That's a that's an interesting way to 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 put it. If you sort of take profits back into margins to get to top line revenue, just to say, you know, when advisory firms run 25% margins or higher, some do 30 plus, three or 4 million of revenue is enough to bring a million dollars of profits to owners. But when you run a 5% margin, like you need 20 million of revenue. Right. To be the same place. In in a world where I guess, you know, and I'm imagining just you're, you're doing, when you're doing a lot of that work, you're vending machines and the, and the like, you are, you know, you're, you're not exactly running the other nice part of our advisory business, which is oh, one client like, oh, that's five grand a year or 10 grand a year or 15 grand a year. Right? Like I don't, I don't even need a huge number of clients to actually get sometimes to a couple of million dollars of revenue to get to a million dollars of profits. Whereas you have to grow and scale and volume up a lot more in most other businesses. Cause you don't, you don't get the same kind of average revenue per client or per customer that we do in our business. Uh, it sort of depends on the business we did in our vending business because we fed people in factories and our sweet spot was 200 to 1,000 employees. Okay. So if you can get in front of that factory and get a contract in the first place, like that's a lucrative contract. Right. And we would often have cafeterias in there and vending machines. And I mean, we had, you know, to do $15 million today, my business, when I sold it in 95, was doing $6.5 million dollars. 
That's about $15 million in today's dollars. And I had 90 employees to get there. Wow. So I, I'm just fascinated by that. So when you sold the business at six and a half million of revenue and 90 employees. Right. Whereas in, in our advisory world context, six and a half million of revenue, you've probably got 15 employees, maybe 20 if you're a little staff heavy by industry standards. Yep, that's about right. And, and by the way, that six and a half million today would be 15 million in my vending company today. Okay. Because I sold my vending company in 1995. Right. So inflation, you know, we were selling candy bars for 50 cents back then. Now they're a buck and a quarter. Interesting. So, so you had a kind of a full career cycle of building this business, running this business, selling this business. So how did you end out in an advisor world advising people with businesses like this? <laughs> this is one of these like, I, wow, I did it and that was horrible and I wish there were more people that knew what I wish I knew. So I'm going to go do that and teach all the other people what I did. No, that's not how, I, that's not how this stuff ever happens. Okay. I, I'm assuming not. So how did, how, did you, how did you get to this world? Well, I sold my, when I was selling my business, I was 44 years old. I knew I wasn't going to be able to retire, so I had to figure out what's next nor did I want to retire. So I looked at opening a software company, and then I would have to deal with software engineers, which would have been terrible. I looked at doing public speaking as a career because I did a fair amount of it, and I didn't want to be on the road all the time. And I happened to have a great life insurance agent, and I really liked the way she sold her product. So I said, hmm. So I called her up, and she was with you know one of the large mutual companies, and I went through the interview process. I said, well, this will be fun. So I went into the life insurance business and I rapidly learned that if I wanted to service my target market, which are private business owners, they need to stuff besides life insurance. Right. But lo and behold, the life insurance company I was working with didn't want me to do anything besides life insurance. Right. Well, and, and that's worth reflecting, like particularly then, you know, today's world it's fairly common for insurance companies to have a broker channel as well and get a fairly wide product shelf and you can do a whole bunch of different stuff. But back in the nineties, like I was starting the tail end of that as well. Like you, you came in for life insurance. You only did life insurance. Like if you, if you hit a certain level of production, like 10 years of experience, maybe someone would deign to allow you to do something beyond just the company product. Maybe. Yeah. And, and they didn't like what I was doing at all because I was, you know, they would teach us, say, well, ask for 15 minutes. And I'd go into a business owner's office and two hours later, I'd walk out. Right. Because I knew how to talk to these guys. And it wasn't like, okay, you harangued me enough. I actually brought value to the conversation because I understood what their issues were and how to talk about it. So after two years, I left the life insurance business. I didn't leave the life insurance business. I left the life insurance company and opened my own wealth management firm. Okay. Which allowed me to open up outside business activities. And I ended up doing a lot of business consulting along with wealth management for our business owner clients. Okay. So... So help me understand a little bit more what this transition looked like. Like, were you, did you go to a broker dealer? Did you launch an RAA to do this? Because you said you were still holding on to some life insurance business as well. Like, what did you structure to try to 
create. I, I joined an insurance producer group and, okay. joined, and joined their broker dealer. Okay. And I guess they were at least willing to allow you to have this outside business activity where you were going to start doing the consulting. Yeah, they were really, they were actually quite good about it. You know, they let me do stuff that a traditional broker dealer would cringe at. I mean, I had a, I've had a blog for over 10 years. I've written over 1,200 blog entries. That, that would have been very kind of avant-garde, cutting edge for a broker dealer even 10 years ago. Yes. So I've been blogging for a long time. I ended up being a blogger for the New York Times. They let me do that. I started doing some seminars. They let me do, they let me basically do whatever I wanted as long as my outside business activities didn't talk about investments or insurance. So that was the dividing line. Just as long as you want to do your business consulting thing and don't, don't cross our product line. Cause then we have to look at everything you do and slap your ass. Like just don't cross that line. You can do what you want in your outside business activity around consulting. And I guess essentially then you said your, your New York times column and your blog and all the rest, like those aren't advisory things. Those are outside business activities. Right. And all the revenue that I got from my advice business ran through their RIA. So they got their cut. Okay. Including, including consulting fees? Yeah, consulting fees. So, so effectively, it was really only your, your, I guess, like your writing persona was entirely outside, but then the advice that stemmed from it still came back in under the RIA. Right. But they never looked at what I did. Okay. They just took the piece they took. Right. <laughs> I'm sure it's very cost efficient for them. It was very cost efficient for one. Right. They kept telling me they were losing money on me. Right. <laughs> now you're, you're talking about it in past tense. So I'm presuming eventually there was some subsequent transition. Yeah. Two years ago, we left the broker dealer world and opened up a, a RIA only firm. Okay. And what led to that transition? The broker dealer was sold to another private equity group. Okay. I, I looked at the underlying portfolio what the private equity guys were doing. It was a bunch of scummy companies like payday lenders and things of that nature. And I said to myself and the other people in our firm, I said, we don't want to be here because eventually they're going to start forcing this junk down our throat. Mm. And we're really, you know, we were at that point, 90, 95% fee only anyhow. So, so we might as well open our own RIA up and leave the broker dealer world and even have more flexibility as an RIA by a long shot than you do in the broker dealer world. So it was an easy decision for us. It just took a couple, it took a long time to get there. Because just of building your own systems of like transitioning your revenue model. So you didn't need the business you were doing. No, there. I was convincing the other two folks in our firm that this was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> the joys of business ownership. And- well, yeah, I, I kind of believe that it's in the wealth management world works best. In fact, all companies work best when everybody's on the same page. Right. So if it takes a little bit longer to get everybody on the same page, I highly recommend doing that. Hmm. I mean, there's a book, and I, I've been reading a book a week since I was 19 years old. And there's a book called Traction by Gino Wickman. Yes. And I highly recommend that book. Highly recommend it. Because, you know, he, Gino Wickman talks about getting everybody on the same page. And it's a big deal to do that. So for folks who are listening or curious, you know, this is episode 117 of the podcast. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 117. We'll have a link out to 
Gina Wickman's traction. I, I will highly recommend it as well. I read it a couple of years ago. It was very transformative for my look at business and how I run some of my businesses. And, and we've actually been implementing some of their tools in, in some of our businesses over the past year. Yeah, they're t- they have great tools. And, and the great thing they have is the, the concept of the visionary and the implementer, which I think is just a really important thing is that too many businesses, and this, and this is one of the issues in the wealth management business, is that most wealth management firms I see are full of implementers and have no visionaries. Yeah. So that visionary role is a really important thing. I and mean, it's a role I often play for clients is I play that rent a visionary. Yeah. And, you know, whereas I, you know, Gino's book struck me because I realized like I, I live in a world of almost pure visionary. You know, they have some assessment tools and like how, you know, how much do you lean towards visionary or, or an implementer integrator type? And I'm like, I, I scored one point shy of the maximum on the visionary side. Cause of some question, like, I guess the most extreme visionaries like will bulldoze the rest of their team and not even, and like ignore what input or feedback they're getting. And I actually take feedback from my team. So that was the one area where I didn't score the maximum. Yeah. If you're a visionary, you don't take feedback from your team. You're headed for a disaster. But it was powerful for me. of just realizing like, Oh, I'm one of those people that just sees all these visions of opportunities Oh, you can actually go find people that just like doing all the integration implementation stuff that follows. Like, great, I'm going to get me one of those. And now I've actually gotten several that I work with for a lot of our businesses. And, and if you don't want to have them in-house, you can go down the virtual assistant path because that world is a really interesting world these days. So, so talk to us a little bit more about your advisory firm itself. I mean, you've said you, you've gone through a couple of iterations and evolutions of it as, you know, the, the licenses and the channels have changed, but just what is, what is the business itself? Well, the business itself is actually, it's a, re, it's a very small business. I mean, we don't really have, we don't have a huge book of business. You know, we're up in Burlington, Vermont, and I would say Burlington, Vermont, probably the wirehouses have 85 to 90% of the market. Okay. And you know, it's just, it's just is the nature of the beast is that the amount of wealth in the state is not huge. People who have significant wealth tend to use Morgan Stanley because they have a really good team in town and know how to do that. Or they're going out of state because they don't think they can get the sophistication they want in town. So my personal practice is very small. I don't have a lot of clients, but I have a lot of high touch with the clients I have. Okay. And so what does that look like? Like what's the what's the model? What do you do for clients? How do you how do you deliver it? How do you charge them? I charge an AUM fee if I manage money. But I also go to clients and say, I will provide all the financial advice you want on a flat fee. And we are taking all products off the table. In other words, you don't use me for investments, you don't use me for insurance. I will consult with you to get the right person to help you with that, but it's not going to be me. And a surprisingly large number of business owners choose that path with me because they want complete independence. And and so you like you literally give them the choice. Like I can I can advise with you, but you also have to put assets with us and here's what it costs, or I can advise with you and I'll charge you a separate flat fee and then you'll go elsewhere, which means you might even have to pay someone else to do that stuff on top of my fee, but at least I'll be independent. 
Right. Yeah, that's how I do it. So, and I would say I'm about 50-50, about 50% of my clients just pay me a fee. 50% of my clients will pay me an asset management fee. But that 50% also might be paying me a consulting fee if I go past the normal asset management work. And and what are typical, I, I guess, either fees or, or account sizes? Like what what's typical for the size and scope of an engagement? None of my investment clients have less than a million dollars with me. Okay. And my one-on-one consulting fees where I do intense work one-on-one with people is between four and $5,000 a month. Four and $5,000 a month? A month. That's a big number. It's a big number and it's big value. Let me give an example. One of the clients I worked with when I first started working with them was doing $140,000 a year. When I left working with them 15 years later, their profits were $2.4 million a year. So, yeah, they're paying me a lot of money, but they also were getting a lot of return. Another one of my clients, we worked together. We sold the business to a private equity firm. Five years later, we turned around, bought the business back from the private equity firm for half of what he was paid. Well, I guess buy low, sell high. Like he, he did that in reverse. No, he bought, he sold high and he bought sold high low. And then bought back, bought back yeah, low. Bought low. Yeah, actually, it's one of my favorite things to do because private equity, you know, they tend to use discounted cash flow to value businesses. And if you have a 20% growth rate for three or four years, the private equity guys think that goes on forever. And that's what they use for the growth factor in their their discounted cash flow analysis. So they're overpaying for the business by a dramatic number. So it's a way to actually position your business to be sold to private equity for a dumb number. And then if you have a way of sticking around for five or six years, you can often buy the dog back. Just because eventually growth rates come back to earth, right? I, I guess that's, I mean, it's not even a, not even necessarily that you're doing a bad thing. It's just the business gets larger. At some point, it's really hard to keep the same growth rate because the denominator gets- Well, you can't keep the growth rate, but also private equity tends to load up their portfolio companies with a lot of stupid expenses and stupid rules. And the, the big private equity guys know what they're doing. The little private equity guys, as a rule, don't. They think they do because they got, you know, nice business degrees. But the truth is a privately held business and an MBA should never be in the same place. (laughs) That's kind of a harsh statement. A a privately held business and an MBA should never be in the same place. I will tell you that I have never seen a business with under $50 million in sales where the MBAs don't have to be retrained to lose all their MBA training and understand that that business has limited resources. So the problem with the MBAs is just, it looks great on paper. Well, this initiative will have a good ROI. We just keep spending resources for ROIs and then not everything turns out as expected. And The MBA training is, we're going to give a simple problem and make it complicated. And in a private business, you have a complicated problem and you need to make it simple. So can you give me an, ex- like an example or just some context? Yeah, well, an example is, let's, you know, let's talk about discounted cash flow. I'm in a privately held business. I want to buy my competitor. My MBA is going to use discounted cash flow, which is likely going to give me a bad number to buy with. I'm going to look at trailing returns and do some sort of a blend on the last three years and multiply that times some sort of EBITDA multiple. 
my trailing return, even on multiple, I can do the back of an envelope in five seconds. Right. This kind of cash flow is going to take me hours to do and is going to be complicated. And nobody, I've yet to have anybody explain to me how discounted cash flow works and how, what cost of capital actually means. Now, I get the cost of capital is 35%, 40%. Okay, explain to me what that means. And better yet, explain that to a private business owner who has been concerned about manufacturing widgets and not doing finance. Right. So that's where the challenge comes in. And so, and so MBAs are doing all these elaborate calculations of projecting growth rates and making discount rate assumptions so they can try to do the cash flows. And a private business owner just comes and says like, nah, you're doing a million dollars of profits. I'll give you a couple times that. I'll pay it back over a few years. I can do the math. It's yeah, it's basically that's it. And the private business owner will put all sorts of contingencies in there because they know after they bought a couple of businesses, if they don't, it's likely to fail. So it's, you know, I'm not opposed to the education part of it. It's the complication part. You know, business is basically a pretty simple thing. We don't need to make it as complicated as we do. So talk to us more about what this advice process or value proposition looks like where you're charging these ongoing consulting retainers and giving business owners ongoing monthly advice. Well, essentially what we do is we look at, you know, five areas of a business. We look at do you have a clearly articulated values for your business? Is your culture, in other words, what are the values that you run your business by? Okay. Most business, all businesses have values. All businesses have culture. Most business owners have never bothered to take the time to articulate what it is. Okay. And, and by doing that, you're, you're giving yourself a tremendous amount of tools to help run your business with. You know, for example, for me, any business I'm involved with, personal responsibility becomes a core value. The other side of personal responsibility is I'm going to blame you for my mistakes or I'm going to justify my behavior. So in my food service company, we used to have to say, are you above the line, which is personally responsible? Are you below the line, blaming and justifying? Now, because we had that solid value, it was easy for us to look at performance and say, where are you? And if you're below the line, what do we need to do to get above the line? You know, I tell the story a lot. I had a commissary person. Our commissaries, we made our food for our vending machines. We made 14,000 units a week that we sold through our vending machines. Wow, that's a lot of food production. Yeah, it was a lot of, you know, this comp- it was a sort of a complicated business. I've said, you know, wealth management is simple. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, the other stuff is not. And I went in there and I saw Tanya and Tanya was making these sandwiches. and It was the worst garbage I ever saw in my life. So I went up to Tanya and said, Tanya, what's up with those sandwiches? And one of our, our sayings was, if you wouldn't eat it yourself, don't serve it. So I said, Tanya, would you want to eat those sandwiches? And she said, no. And I said, okay, why are you making them like that? <laughs> and she's now studying my feet very intently, by the right. way. And she looks at me and then she's looking at my feet and said, well, you made me do it because you had made me do it fast. I said, Tanya, I just walked in the, the facility. How could I have made you do this? This was, you've been doing this for the last hour. 
And then she looks across the room to our manager who was wrapping sandwiches. And she said, well, she made me do it. I said, really? <laughs> and, she, and then after we went, we went on this for about 10 minutes. And then after we, I kept at it, and I, I usually would come in and start screaming. But for some reason, I decided to ask questions. And after doing this, asking questions for about 10 minutes, she stopped studying my feet. Her physiology completely changed. And she straightened up and said, well, I guess it was my fault. I said, okay, now what are you going to do about it? She said, well, I'm going to remake them. From that point on, she went from being a marginal employee to being one of my best employees. So that's taking the values that we had as a company and using them as a tool. So we do that. The second thing is, is that to build a business where you're successful, in my opinion, and this is one of the real challenges in the wealth management world, is you have to become operationally irrelevant in your business if you want to ever sell your business for real value. Because a buyer doesn't want you. They want your cash flow. They want your systems. They want your people. They don't want you. They'll tell you they want you, but they really don't. That's one of the great lies. So you need to become operationally irrelevant. Well, to become operationally irrelevant, you need to become a delegation ninja, which you need to be really good at delegating. Now, the problem with that is everybody I've ever met, when they first try to delegate, they are a total abject failure. I was certainly guilty as charged when I started delegating. I'm probably only marginally better now, but it was definitely bad early on. Yeah, when people first delegate, they don't delegate, they abdicate. Mm. Meaning they they give a job to somebody, they walk away and never check to see if it's being done. My first mentor had a great thing called EIA, which stood for expect, inspect, accept. Expect, inspect, accept. You start off with an expectation, you inspect to make sure you're getting it, and then you accept the work, or you go back and reset your expectation. So that's a really good way to delegate because now you're, you're checking back in with the person and you're giving them some support. Right. But when you just abdicate and you walk back and you say, well, delegation doesn't work, I have to do it myself. And that's why companies never grow. Most companies never grow past 10 to 15 employees because the owner never learns to delegate. When they never learn to delegate, they're obviously never going to become operationally irrelevant, which means they're really killing the enterprise value of their business. Right. Now, the other thing that goes along with it, as you're learning to delegate and as you're becoming operationally irrelevant, you need to have a dashboard that's predictive, not historic. Most people, the only numbers they ever look at in their business are the numbers that tell them what happened yesterday, otherwise their P&L and balance sheet. Your P&L and balance sheet are really basically not very useful for running your business. It's good to look at it and you want to pay attention to it. Right. But they're, they're backward looking. They pretty much only tell you if you're out of money or already doomed. <laughs> right. So you need to build a dashboard that's showing predictive about what's going to happen in the future. So those numbers never come off your P&L or balance sheet. There are other things. How many sales calls are your sales people making? What's the amount of proposals they're putting out? What's the amount of proposals that are closing? You know, in our business, you know, getting new business is an activity. It's a sales activity. Well, are we managing that activity properly? And are we going to be having problems in the future by looking at that? You know, if I work with a 
construction company, I'll be looking at what their backlog is. I'll be looking to see what their proposal level is. I'll be looking at the scene what the percent of proposals or bids to closing happens. And if those numbers start going off in the wrong direction, we usually have 90 to 120 days to fix it. Okay. So these are all kind of sales and marketing heavy key performance indicators, essentially. Like how's your how's your funnel, how's your growth funnel doing? Right. And how's your operational funnel doing? Are you doing the right stuff to have really happy customers? Are your margins correct? Are you charging the right amount for what you're doing? You know, when I work with people who start off in the advice business, you know, who are charging or trading dollars for hours, they often think they've got 2,000 hours a year to sell. Well, they don't. At best, they have 1,200 hours, but they probably have 800 hours to sell. We actually just recently did a study on financial advisory time usage and found the average advisor, if you add up just anything remotely client-facing or client-touching, ends out just over 50% of their time, about 1,000 hours a year. Yeah. So you've got another 1,000 hours a year. So if you think your break-even is, I'm going to spend, get $100 an hour for 2,000 hours, you're 50% too cheap already. Right. So essentially what I do is I help business owners. I, I, you know, Susan Bradley from Sudden Money has this great term, which I love. It's called a thinking partner. So I kind of view myself as a thinking partner for a business owner. And and frankly, the folks who are going to pay me four or $5,000 a month, they're already making a half a million dollars a year. Somebody making $200,000 a year is not going to be able to write a check for a half a million dollars. So we've developed some products now for that group that help them move down the road where maybe they can get to the half a million bucks and they'll, and they'll hire me for one-on-one stuff. So I'm curious, what are the, the rest of the areas you're going through them with? You said, I'm setting clear values and culture, becoming operationally relevant in your business, building your predictive dashboard. Setting up systems, have appropriate systems for your business. Okay. And then looking at the, and the systems can be literally everything. You know, I'm a, one of the stupid things I decided to go and do is I became what's called a scrum master. And a scrum master is what you become if you learn agile technologies, which is how software is developed today. Now, you may notice that every two or three weeks, you have to restart your Google Chrome browser because it stops working. Right. And the reason is Google has just updated Chrome. They just haven't told you they've done it. Right. Because every two or three weeks, they release a new product when they're using agile technologies to do that. Now, I help business owners figure out how they can use Scrum in all sorts of businesses because it's a really useful tool. And then the last thing is, which is really a result more than it is an input, which is there are four areas of profit that business owners need to pay attention to. And at best, they pay attention to two of them. And they never really fully fund all four areas. So they're always cash starved. Okay. And so one of the things that we focus on a lot is helping people figure out how to create enough excess cash to have a healthy business. So, so what are these four areas then that can bring it down? First is lifestyle, because you have to live. Okay. Second is an emergency fund, because all businesses are going to have good times and bad times. Right. And the reason business, most businesses go out of business is they don't have the ability to have cash, so you need to have an emergency fund. 
The third thing is a fully funded growth plan, whatever that is. Businesses are either growing or they're shrinking. They're never staying the same for a long period of time. So if you don't have a fully funded growth strategy, which is marketing, sales, whatever you need to do to grow your business, you're going to have a problem down the road. And the final is a fully funded retirement plan because only about 1% of the businesses in this country will ever get the owner to retirement all by itself. It's a striking statistic. Only 1% of businesses will actually get owners to retirement. Yeah. I feel like we kind of hold entrepreneurship up on the pedestal of like, this is how everybody's supposed to get to retirement. Well, you can do it, but if you, by fully funding your retirement plan, you're pre-funding your buyout. So if I get you to put enough money away early enough, you're going to end up, I mean, we have a thing called the four boxes of financial independence, which is a tool I use. And the two most valuable assets usually for a business owner who's leaving their business is the real estate they run their business in because they can continue renting it and their qualified plan. Because if I have a business making $300,000, I'm going to end up with maybe a million two, maybe a million five when I'm done. And that's a really big number because most businesses don't get close to making that much money. You know, there, there's 28 million businesses in the, in the United States. Only 300,000 do more than $5 million a year in sales. That's kind of a humbling number right there. Yeah, so the numbers get really small, really fast. And that's why I say only 1% of the businesses get it there without doing other stuff. So the typical business owner will sell their business for five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars $700,000. If after taxes and fees, and they're going to lose 40% after taxes and the fees, they're left for 300000 bucks. Take 4% of that, you got $12,000 a year. Yeah, I didn't get you very far. That's I not got, getting you very far. I kind of depressing really fast. Yeah, yeah. But if I have a piece of real estate and that piece of real estate is worth $50,000 and I've paid it off because I've been running it for 15 years or so, that's $50,000 worth of cash flow every year. So my real estate potentially on an income basis is worth four times what the, my business is worth in retirement. It's an interesting framing to me, the, the dynamic of the power of owning your real estate in your, in your business. Because you know, I, I mean, to me, at the end of the day, like wearing my business hat, I will have a rent expense. It's going somewhere no matter what. It will fund someone's you know, building mortgage and build their, build their real estate equity. So I can either send it to someone else or if I've got any financial wherewithal, I can send it to me. And I've essentially, you know, the, the, fixed rent cost I was going to have to spend anyways builds my real estate equity. Right. Right. And often what happens is you'll find business owners will buy their, the building they operate their business in and they realize that they, they like that and they'll buy other buildings. So they start building sort of a, a real estate empire to go along with their operating empire. And then you get to qualify plans. And most businesses in this country have less than 25 employees And the question I often ask business owners is, if there are no rules, how much money would you like to save for retirement every year? And whatever number they come up with, there's a plan that fits that. Whether it's a cash balance hybrid plan with a 401k profit sharing plan, or if they're young, like I've got a guy who's 29 years old, he's buying his father out right now. We're going to a safe harbor plan. He's going to have four and a half million dollars likely in his retirement plan 
irregardless of what happens to the business when it gets to 65. Right. Because I, as you were kind of saying earlier, I mean, until you work with really, really large businesses, like a business even with 10 or $20 million of revenue and maybe two or three owners, like single digit profit margins for a lot of businesses, there's probably only a couple hundred thousand dollars of profit per owner. You got to live, you got to fund your emergency fund, you got to cover your growth strategy and the rest. Like just you're probably not going to be trying to save all that much more than what you can at least creatively get into some interesting qualified plan designs. Well, you could, you know, if you're 50 years old, I can design a plan that you get 200,000 bucks easily for you. And there's a fair amount of businesses that create with, you know, five, six, seven employees. There are service businesses that create that sort of free cash flow. So it's, it's really pretty, you know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a fun thing. If you're going to work with private businesses and you're in the wealth management business, I really encourage folks to become experts at everything about qualified plans because it's sort of like a magic bullet to do that. And the other thing I'm going to encourage people in this business to do, stop talking to your clients about the reason to diversify because all their eggs are in one basket. Your clients don't buy that argument. I can tell you this for a fact. I've been around business owners for a long time on both sides of the table. They just don't buy it. Now, the way to get them to do the qualified plan is say, you're never going to be able to stop working unless you have a qualified plan. And if you have a way to prove that to them, and we do using our four boxes thing, then they're going to want to say, okay, how can I max my plan out? So you wouldn't you wouldn't make the case for small business owners to diversify other business per se at best you're you're just going to try to get them to say hey take a portion of your profits you know you're covering your lifestyle you're covering your emergency fund you've got a growth plan let's put the rest aside and just start pre-funding your future buyout in case it doesn't quite get the number that you're hoping to get and you know lo and behold mathematically you are now diversifying them out of their business with their profits but right it's a, it's, a, it's a sneaky way to do it yep you know, you have to use the language that you're, the person you're talking to will buy. And the truth is, most private business owners know more about their industry and their business than you do as an advisor. And if they have any brains at all, they're going to know when their business or their industry goes south. I mean, I sold my vending company not because I hated the vending business. I sold it because the industry went south on me. Hmm. And I knew it years before it really got bad. Well, and it, and it, it does strike me. And you know, I've, I've watched this play out with both business owner clients and now kind of experience it from the other end as I, as I build businesses myself. You know, just the, the, if you can create a successful business, and that's a giant if, because as noted, like many don't or they never get particularly large. If you can create a, a successful business, the growth rate and the wealth creation that happens in that business, like it, it, you have a good point. You, you will never convince someone to diversify out of it. You can't come close to replicating <laughs> the wealth creation that they're getting in their business if they're building a successful business enterprise. Well, I mean, I don't care what business it is. If I have a business that's making $5 million a year and I'm able to sell it for $30 bucks, I'm going to pay, let's say, just for fun, $10 million in taxes and fees, I'm left with $20 million. I'm going to have $800,000 in cash flow. Well, that's not $5 million. It's 800000 bucks. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've been involved in the exit, you know, the business exit planning world for 20 some, some odd years. I ran across John Brown from Business Enterprise Institute 22 years ago. 
and joined his tribe. And for 22 years, I've been hearing about this tsunami of businesses that are going to be sold. It hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. And the reason it's not going to happen is two reasons. One, the business owner stays in PERMA 5, which means that they know there's something wrong, that they're not able to retire, but whatever is going on will magically appear and reveal itself over the next five years, and they'll be able to retire. Okay, that's perm, PERMA 5. That, that my, the solution to my business challenge is just a few more years away. Right. And if I come back two years later, it's still five years. Two years after that, it's still five years. So I, I named that PERMA 5. I mean, frankly, I feel like that's something we see a lot in our advisory business as well. I mean, I, I know I know a lot of young advisors that are in the seventh year of a five-year succession plan that's now really five years out. Right. Maybe sort of. Well, the second reason that people don't sell their business, now there are people who can afford to sell and they don't sell. And M&A people will tell you this, this happens a lot, is that the business owner starts going down the road of selling their business and they have that letter of intent that lands on their desk and they stare at it and they stare at it and they stare at it and they don't sign it. And the reason they don't sign it is because they look over the edge and they don't see a compelling future. Right. They like what they're doing. The income goes away. The money goes away. My purpose goes away. Like right now I'm head honcho of my business or whatever it is. After that, I'm just some dude or dudette who sold a business and doesn't do anything now, creates identity crisis. Yeah. I mean, when you sell your business, you're going to have seller's remorse. I've, I used to think I could help people avoid it. I've now come to the conclusion I can only help people manage it. Mm. Again, Susan's got this great, great model for, for change, which is we start with the anticipation. We go to an ending. We go through passage, which is really messy. And then we have a new normal that finally happens. Now, the problem with business owners is business owners live in anticipation forever. They, they think about selling their business for years and years and years and years. And as a result, they think they've actually done the planning to what they need to do because they've thought about it. So when I go through that with a business owner, they'll often say, oh, yeah, I get that. That makes sense to me. So it's, it's, a, it's a kind of an interest. It's a really important model, in my opinion. And passage is where seller's remorse happens because you're going from one state to another. You know, when I sold my vending company, I would get on a weekly average seven to 10 calls from people wanting to talk to me about stuff in the business. The day I sold my company, the phone stopped ringing. Mm. And my first meeting at that first time I went to that insurance meeting where nobody knew me, nobody cared about me, nobody wanted to talk to me was a very, very, very lonely day. Because I was a big deal in the vending business. Right, right up until you sold and then you weren't. And that was nobody. And so, so that seller's remorse is less around the dollars and cents of the sale. It's just the... It's never around the dollars and cents. It's almost never around the dollars and cents. It's, usually, it's almost always about how am I going to fill my time now? I'm not a big deal. Nobody wants to talk to me. Nobody loves me. I mean, that's the sort of thing that goes in is that what's the, what's the use of living? Well, and indirectly, this is part of why I've been particularly bearish or just disagreeing with all the 
industry commentary for years in, in our world that there's supposed to be this like giant wave of advisors that are supposed to start selling in mass in the next few years because they're eligible for their social security checks. And, you know, 60 something is the age you're supposed to retire. And I just look and say, why, why would you retire? Like we make, particularly if you've been doing it that long, you make great money. You can simplify the business if you're not happy with some things. I've seen a few advisors that actually tried to get ready to sell the business. So they finally put the systems in place and the rest. And then the business got so much easier. It was like, well, I was going to sell, but now that I got it ready to sell, I really don't want to sell because this just got really good again. That happens to me all the time. People walk in my office and they say, I want to sell my business. And they'll say, when? They'll say, yesterday. <laughs> and then I say, well, we can take you through this process where we can get your business ready to sell. And by doing that, we help them build what we call a sale-ready business. And it means we get them out of the day-to-day operations altogether. And then three years, four years down the road, say, okay, you're ready to sell. You want to go to market? And they say, what? Why would I want to do that? I'm having too much fun. I'm making too much money. And I'm not interested in selling. Now, in the wealth management world, there's a strategy that I don't hear anybody talking about. And I call it the wind-down strategy. Are you familiar with the 80-20 principle? 80% 80% of your profits come from 20% of your clients. 80% of any result becomes from 20% of your inputs. It happens, it's across the, across the board. So if I'm in the wealth management business, I'm going to say 80% of my profits come from 20% of my clients. Well, if I give away those 80% of those clients and I just keep the 20%, I'm now down to working one day a week. And if I go to a company like yours, like Pinnacle, which could provide all that back-end stuff for me, I can get rid of my office and my back-end, and now it's me with maybe a part-time assistant in my office, I'm going to most likely end up making more money than I was when I had a full book of business. And in a minuscule fraction of the time. In a minuscule fraction of the time. Our Pinnacle Advisor Solutions outsourcing platform, like we, we built primarily for those advisors, you know, you're, you're 10 to $50 million. There's a healthy asset base. You can drastically simplify the practice by winnowing it down and get to just a amazingly comfortable lifestyle practice with remarkably little work and, and really good income. And like, it's not free income. It's the cumulative value of what you've been building in reputation and business relationships for 10, 20, 30 years. But it's, it's an amazing thing to just sit tight on and hold on to. I mean, we've got an advisor in her early 80s who's just now maybe thinking about winding down. Right. And by the way, you can, as time goes on, you can 80-20 or 80-20. Yeah. I just had Perry Marshall on my podcast a couple of days ago, and Perry is Mr. 80-20. And what he's talking about now is no longer 80-20. It's now 80-20 of the 80-20, which is your top 5%. Yeah, so we're now like 96-4. <laughs> yeah, create, create almost all the activity in your business. In my opinion, selling a wealth management business is the bad solution. Unless you have a health issue or there's a good reason to do so. But most of us are going to be healthy into our 70s and probably 80s. Knock on wood. Uh, That's my hope. (laughs) I'm 66 years old. I have no interest in stopping what I'm doing. I love it. I actually keep starting new initiatives. (laughs) Take us back for a moment to this, you know, charging clients fifty dollars or $60,000 a year for, what do you even call it? It's really not business 
coaching per se. You're not really in a coaching role. I feel like you're in a more direct consultant role, but not the, you know, not the industry consultant kind of consultant that I think most people think of with consultants. You're sort of a, just a general, like how to actually run your business, like a business. Yeah. I'm a strategic guy. I, I work with you on the strategic part of your business where the real money is made. Right. There's a guy named Rob Slee, who's probably one of the smartest M&A guys I know. And he's written a whole bunch of books, including Private Capital Markets, which if you're in the business world and you really want to be serious about servicing business owners, read that book. It'll be, you'll have to slog through it. What's it called again? Private Capital Markets. Private Capital Markets. Okay. And actually, it's Private Capital Markets, too, because he updated the book. All right. We'll, we'll make sure we put a link to it. But Rob has a concept he calls the $5,000 per hour job. Most of us spend most of our time doing stuff we can hire somebody else for $25 an hour. Right. But every once in a while, we do something that is actually worth $5,000, $10,000, or maybe even $100,000 for the decision you just made. And that's the strategic part of your business. So once you decide, I want to be strategically excellent, there are things you need to do to get there. And we help people do that. And that's high, high value stuff. And so how do you, how do you explain that, that value? You know, like in our advisory world, I think a lot of us are, you know, we're trying trying to charge a couple thousand dollars in planning fees a year, not a month, and still struggling with like articulate the value of personal financial planning to justify this X thousand dollar fee. Well, first of all, personal financial planning, in my opinion, and I hate to say this because we're in the financial planning business, but I'm going to say that planning is great. Plans stink. Okay. We focus on the financial plan, not on the planning. And the planning is where the value is. So if you're, you're focusing on creating a document, your client doesn't see the value in that. But when you're working, sitting side by side with them in the planning process, that's where the value is. You know, when I do a financial plan, I don't sit in my office and do the financial plan. We put the stuff up on the screen and the client tells me which lever to push where because they're involved in the plan and they love that. So when we get together, it's not a plan, it's a planning session. So value is in the planning, not in the plan. Well, it reminds me of, you know, the story I tell sometimes of, of you know, the world of Build-A-Bear, where, you know, Teddy Bear is like a cheap commoditized business. I can buy one off Amazon for a couple of dollars and see like a little drone will just drop it in my hand. And you Build-A-Bear is a Teddy Bear store where, you come in and make the bear. So you bring your little one along and you pick the, the fur and the stuffing and the clothing and the accoutrements and the eye and the nose and you sew a heart inside and it's adorable. Put a name on and you turn like a $10 teddy bear into a $100 bear construction experience. And what's always struck me about it is just like the fundamental audacity of that model to say, hey, I've got a great idea for a teddy bear store let's charge 10 times as much as everybody else, but the person has to make it themselves. Yeah. And what does that look like in the planning world when you say like, you know, instead of charging someone a couple thousand dollars for a plan, what if you charge them five times as much, but they had to make it in your office? Yeah. It's a much better, it's a much better result in my opinion. So here's how I, this is how I decide whether I can help somebody enough to even 
talk to them about our one-on-one fee or our, our what I call the comprehensive fee. I start off saying, okay, where are you? let's talk about where you are now. And we have a conversation about where we are now. Then I use, you know, the strategic coach question. If we were to get together five years from now, what would have to happen for you to be personally and professionally successful, which is where they want to be in the future? And I say, okay, what's the gap between those two? And if we could help you go from where you are now to where that gap is in the future, what would it be worth to you? Now, Sometimes somebody's going to say, well, most of the time they say, I don't know, priceless, more than I could ever pay you. You know, you get all those sorts of things. I say, well, we can help you get there, and this is what we need to do to help you get there. Would you like some help doing this? And then if they say yes, then I say, this is a really hard close. You ready for this? Would you like me to help you? And then it's a yes or a no. Yes. <laughs> there I just you made are. a vision that sounds awesome because I made it up myself. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not going to make that offer unless I can deliver three, four, five times what my fee is. And in fact, we have a couple of less expensive programs we do. And I actually have a guarantee in that if I can't come up with a strategy to get you to financial independence, I give you your money back. If I can't get you come up with a strategy to get you the cash flow freedom, I give you your money back. Now, I only people have to apply for that program, and I vet them, and I have you know a process that I go through to say, can I get this person to a result? And it's a six thousand dollar fee, so it's not a huge amount of money. And if I can't do it, they don't. The only thing they've lost is their time, not their money. Right. And, and that's the thing that I see. You know, we can't guarantee investment returns. I get that. Nor would we want to. But we can come up with guarantees about the type of service or what we're going to do. And there's all sorts of ways for us to put guarantees into what we do. And, and the reason that I'm so strong on this, I have now hired five Facebook advisors to help me do Facebook ads. And all five have been terrible, even though they talked about a game. The last two, I said, what's your guarantee? And they said, well, we can't have a guarantee because we don't know what you're going to do. I said, I'm not asking for a guarantee about creating customers. I'm talking about a guarantee that this ad is going to create a conversation. All I want you to guarantee, and they won't do it. So if you really believe in what you're doing, and by the way, my my $5,000 a month thing, that's month to month. You don't like me? Fire me. I'm gone. There's no contract. You know, the stuff with contracts that you got to pay me for a year, whether I'm good or bad. I don't want that. And the client certainly doesn't want that. You know, to, let's do a little, let's think about risk reversal, which means that the vendor is taking the risk and not the customer. So that's, that's one of my soapbox issues. I, I jump up and down about that a lot. I'm, I am fascinated, though, by just this framing of, like, how can we set a guarantee in our business as an advisor? Because, like, I can't, I certainly can't guarantee you investment returns. A lot of regulators will have a lot to say about that. I can't can't literally guarantee you, like, an outcome because that pretty much ties to returns in markets and things I can't control. But you can guarantee that you can come up with a strategy to get them to an outcome that they'll be happy with. And that's really, I mean, it really comes down to, are we pursuing the right strategies for our clients? 
you know, you know, like I don't deal with employees, but if I dealt with high level employees, I would become an expert at when it's time for them to leave. And I would be coaching these people to say, you know something, you've been in this job for three or four years. You're not getting the type of raises you can. You need to go find a headhunter and make yourself available to see what's out there. Right. I don't know anybody in the wealth management business that understands how headhunters work. Yeah, it's one of the things that's always frustrated me of sort of these discussions of do you know, what planning do you do for young people? Like their accounts aren't very big. So, you know, how complex can their needs be? It's like, try helping someone switch jobs and get a $10,000 raise and see how long that, see how long complex that is. And, and how valuable it is if you lift their income by 10 grand a year for the next 30 years, like that's hundreds of thousands of dollars of wealth creation, but that's not a simple problem. I just did that with my daughter. I was, you know, my daughter was in a job. I said, well, Alexa, you're getting underpaid by $25,000. It's time for you to go out and see what, what, you, what you're really worth. Now, it took me eight months to get her to finally do that. Guess what? She just has a new job. She started on Monday. This paying her $25,000 more. Right. That's a big number. She went from sixty dollars to 85000 bucks. That's a huge increase. Right. Especially when you multiply that over a, over a career, like that's not just a one-time thing for most people. That's a new base for all your future raises and jobs. She takes half of that and puts it into her 401k. And when she gets to be 65 years old, she's going to have plenty of dough. So as you're having these conversations with prospective clients around, around this pricing, like what do you talk to them about that you're going to do? or I guess do on an ongoing basis? Like, is there a, we're going to meet monthly or we're going to meet quarterly or a a structure around how you service clients for this kind of ongoing business consulting service? Well, if someone's paying me $5,000 a month, it's all you can eat, which means they can call me whenever we'll have a conversation when they want. At a bare minimum, we get together once a quarter for a whole day. Okay. Typically, it's six times a year for six times to 12 times a year for a whole day. And in there, we do a thing we call the 90-day plan. We review our 90-day plan. We say, where are we stuck? You know, it's using Gina Whitman's stuff of basically, you know, the, you know. Building a lot of the EOS tools and templates. A lot of the EOS tools. You know, I, I love the level 10 meeting. I think it's a great, great meeting format. I want to have people have big rocks. I think big rocks are incredibly important. That comes out of Stephen Covey. If you've not read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, you need to read that. You need to pay attention to the big rocks section. and You need to adopt that in your life. Yep. So how many clients then can you effectively support in this kind of model? Do you look at it that way? If I've got a certain capacity and then I'm going to cap out? Yeah, I, I only accept five clients in the comprehensive level. Okay. And I'm actually working on a one-to-many program right now where I believe a lot of the stuff I do on a comprehensive basis can be done through an online learning program. Because essentially, when you start niching down to small niches, all these people in this industry have the exact same problem. And taking them through work in a way that makes some sense really is something I'm finding. That's where I'm actually putting a fair amount of effort right now. I've been doing some work with a guy named Stu McLaren. He's up in Toronto, has a program called Tribe. 
And in my opinion, Stu really, really has gotten this online learning stuff down very, very, very well. So I'm using his technology and his methodology to put together a program for cracking the cash flow code. So tell us more about cracking the cash flow code. Well, it's essentially is, you know, how do you create enough cash in your business to fund the four areas of profit? You know, sometimes with people I might recommend, in fact, I'm going to do this. I'm going to recommend that people who are in that program engage with a profit first consultant. Profit first is a methodology that Mike McCallowitz came up with. It's a good book and essentially it's the envelope system for a business where you set up separate accounts for taxes, for profit. In the first account you fund is profit. The second account you fund is taxes. And then you use the rest to run your business. And people who actually do that will find that their profits in their business automatically jump. It's sort of like the red car syndrome. I mean, have you ever noticed that when you buy a different color or different model car, there's like thousands of them that appear automatically? Yes. All of a sudden, you have, once you buy it, you know that you notice it everywhere. And it's everywhere. Well, the same thing is with profit. If I focus on profit first, I'm going to start finding profit appears because I'm going to start doing subconsciously the things that I need to know to do to create profit. You know, the reason I like the term thinking partner is that I rarely tell somebody something in the business they've not thought about. They need someone to help them to think through how it can become operational for them and then somebody to hold them accountable for doing the things they say they're going to do. I call it being pleasantly persistent. I like that framing that they need someone to figure out how to make it operational and then hold them accountable. Yes. And essentially... That's what a coach does. Although I don't like the term coach, nor do I like the term mentor. I really like the term thinking partner. Okay. (laughs) So, Susan, thank you. (laughs) So, with these small business owners that you're working with that are making half a million plus dollars, so they can spend these 50 plus thousand dollar a year business consulting fees, and it's a good ROI for them. Where do they come from? <laughs> where, do you, where do you find people who can drop $50,000 in business advice fees and be able to do that? Well, people know what I do. And they'll often say, you want to have a conversation with Patrick. He's kind of interesting. He's a little bit weird, a little bit acerbic, but he's kind of interesting. You might, you might find it useful. And I have conversations with people, and then I go through with the alignment conversation, which is a, a standard thing. And if I think that my comprehensive consulting, comprehensive program would work for you, I say, let's start off and do an objective review, which is a two-day process I have that takes them through a bunch of stuff, and we'll see what the real opportunity is. And then you can make a decision about whether I'm the right guy to work with because you've had some experience working with me in a thinking partner relationship. And do you you charge for that initial? Yes. It's a two-day program and it's $10,000. Okay. It's a good enough chunk of change that someone's going to think a little bit about doing it. And again, I say, look, if you don't get a result, I'll give you your money back. If we don't come up with stuff that's really valuable for you, I'll give you your money back. I've never given my money back. We use a tool called Core Value. 
which looks at nine internal drivers, nine external drivers in the business. Okay. And it's a really, it's essentially a mock due diligence exam. Okay. And as a result, I'm going to help the owner uncover what they do. I'm going to talk with them. We also go through a very in-depth values process. I got from a guy named Gunther Weil. Gunther is my Forrest Gump of the values world. is unbelievably interesting. And with that, we come up with the top 10 values somebody has. We move that down to five. We help them decide whether these are core values or aspirational values. And with the core value, we say, are we using this in your business? If they're not, we figure out how to do that. That's all part of this initial process. Okay. So we're really setting the table for where they could be. Okay. And that two-day process will tell me and tell them whether we can stop here or they would like some help making this stuff real. So the key is, do you want help? And would you like me to help you? I'm, I'm still wondering a little bit more, though, just where did these people come from? Like, I, you know, it's a great place to be in your business of like, we have people with multi-million dollar businesses just kind of find me and ask me to help them. Like, how do, how do they get to you? Well, I've been blogging for 10 years. I do a weekly video. I do a weekly newsletter. I have a weekly podcast. I stalk people on LinkedIn. In other words, I start, try to start conversations with them. There are lots and lots of ways of finding people who are potentially good clients. And one of the reasons we're doing the low-end programs, and I want to have Cracking the Cash Flow Co. become a self-learning, because the natural progression would be they go from that program into a mastermind, into a one of the you know the five or six thousand dollar programs, and then one percent of them are going to raise their hand and say, "I want to have the big thing." So it's really you know it's feeding people through a progression where some people will pop out. So what are what are most advisors missing in their in their process? Because you're you seem very comfortable with finding some very sizable clients coming in in a world where I'm sure as you know like. Most advisors, like one of your clients would be a whale for most advisors, right? I mean, a lot of advisors, a half million dollar asset client is a good client. You're talking to people with half a million of income. Right. And you'd be surprised how many of those folks with half a million dollars in income are saving almost nothing. Okay. So they've, so, so part of this is just they, you know, they can easily pay tens of thousands of dollars for advice as long as you don't charge them an AUM fee because they don't have any assets. They just have a lot of income. To they have a lot of pay. income. The reason I came up with this program was I found that a ton of business owners make a ton of money and they have nothing that, that to invest because they stick it all back in their business. Now, if I'm making a half a million dollars a year, it doesn't mean I'm sticking a half a million bucks in my pocket. I'm going to probably be taking two or three hundred thousand dollars out throwing it back in my business. Right. So it's not all going into my pocket. Or, or not necessarily all getting spent or wasted or, you know, the, like, it's not that they're all profligate spenders. It's just when you're watching a business go up in value by millions of dollars, the whole like, I can put you in the S&P 500 and might do eight to 10 is not so exciting when I'm watching my business grow like a million dollars a year. Right. And, they, and they'll tell me that. So why should I give you money to invest when I can buy real estate that's a 20% return on investment or even get better than that in my own business? So I'm going to throw it back in my own business. 
Now, some guys do take some money away, but this is where it comes, you know, we're having a proof tool saying, you need to save money and this is why. And you and we need to start looking at your business in a different manner. Now, I think one of the reasons that I have some luck with business owners is my conversation with them is so different than the average advisor that they will say, you know, this guy is different. He speaks my language. My specialty is blue-collar businesses. Because that was the world you came from. Right. And I've had some wealth management clients we've been very, very successful with. But the truth is most wealth management people are really kind of happy running a business that's not a real business. It's a lifestyle business. Right. Or a hobby business, depending on how you, you know, how pejorative you want to be about talking about it. By the way, I don't think a lifestyle business is necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't either. I mean, you can make some ludicrously profitable high cash flow practices for yourself, just building around it. And as you said, you're doing one or even two rounds of 80, 20 in the business to simplify it after some period of time. But, you know, it's great income as long as you're doing it and it goes away when you go away. Yeah. I mean, that's just, I mean, in which case you may as well keep doing it. The way wealth management businesses are sold are completely dysfunctional, in my opinion. You know, I sell my business, I'm going to get 35% down, I'm going to hold paper for 65%, and I'm not going to get a personal guarantee because the buyer doesn't want to give it to me. I've heard that, by the way, from four different wealth management firms selling their business, where I've gotten into the conversation and say, you're not getting a personal guarantee. They couldn't guarantee. even get a personal guarantee for the, for the note portion? Nope. Let's put it this way. They never said to the buyer, if you don't give me a personal guarantee, I'm not selling you my business. Yeah. And I suppose to some extent that's because we, you know, we look at it and say, well, my, my business is great. It's very successful. It's high income. It's high profitable. It's got good momentum. Like it's not that risky anyways, if I don't get a personal guarantee back. Oh God, that, I, I can't think of a business that's more risky <laughs> than the business that's built on the personality of the owner. Right. And almost every wealth management business is built on the personality of the owners. That that personally goes away, the person buying, how do you know that they're going to treat your clients the way you do? And the truth is when you hold paper, you are taking a huge risk. There is no bigger risk you can take than that. Which is why at least you should be getting personal guarantees on any transaction. Lots of other things to put in there on top of that. If you're going to play bank, act like a bank. You need to get monthly reporting. You need to have certified statements. You have to have the ability to take the board over fast if covenants fall out. You're being a bank for the buyer. So for God's sake, act like a bank. Do the same thing a bank would do. Have loan covenants. Have personal guarantees. Make sure that's cross-collateralized by the spouse. Because if, the, if you put the assets in the spouse's name and I personally guarantee, that doesn't do anything for you unless the, the spouse is also on the note as a personal guarantor. So do all the things that the bank does. Go to your banker. Say, when you write a loan, what do you guys look for security? And just copy it. Right. I do like that framing. If you're, if you're going to play bank, act like a bank. Right. I mean, that's, you know, to me, it's, it's a pretty simple thing. I mean, it does, it does strike me, frankly, that a lot of what you're talking about, including straight down to your, your five core areas, you're setting 
clear values and culture, becoming operationally relevant in your business, building your dashboard, setting up your systems, managing your profits effectively. Like it is equally relevant for us as advisory firm business owners as it is for any of the other business owners you're consulting with. So let me ask you a question. Are you a business owner? No, I, I think most advisors would by default say yes. I'll admit I I use those labels of practice versus business very, very deliberately. That I think most advisors have practices that are built around them and not and not businesses that are ongoing concerns. And not that that's necessarily a knock. Like as we said, you can have an amazingly high income profitable practice that can put food on your table and put your kids through college and get you to retirement just fine. Like the money adds up because we're in a high income industry, but the mentality of those who actually want to build businesses look very different. Not, not the least down to your point of real business owners try as quickly as they can to become operationally irrelevant in their, in their businesses. So you, what would it look like if you really want to be an advisory firm business owner that means you should try to be out of clients as quickly as possible. Right. And clients need to become clients of the firm, not clients of an advisor. And that's a challenge. I mean, I, I consider that probably the biggest challenge that a wealth management firm has that wants to become a real business is how do you make your clients clients of the firm? And I'm not sure I've completely figured it out, although I do have some ideas about it. You know, I think having multiple people in the firm service a client is one thing. If a, an advisor leaves, you have to immediately circle in with a new person to work with them. And there has to be there has to be a whole systematic basis for how to handle turnover and how to make people feel that they're attached to your firm, not to the person who services them in the firm. So you need multiple touch points or multiple people within the firm. I almost think that the way accounting firms work is a good model for wealth management firms that want to build significant businesses. Because if you go to an accounting firm, you generally work, you'll always work with a tax person and an audit person. And you generally will work with other specialists if you engage that firm to do other things. So having a wealth management firm that has a, a suite of services you know, one of the things I tell people, how do you differentiate yourself? Well, if you have one thing that makes you different, you sound like everybody else. Two things that are different, you sort of sound like everybody else. When you have three things that are different, you actually have a differentiation strategy you can use. So the question I would ask for, to a wealth management firm is, what are the three unique things your firm provides for your clients? And is there a way to have three different people deliver it? I like that. What are three unique things your firm does? And is there a way to have three different people deliver that? Yes. Now you're making people clients of your firm and not dependent on the individual. So if an individual leaves, they're attached to the firm for what the firm can provide, not what that individual can provide. And, and that's not 100% true, but it's pretty darn close to it. I like that framing. I like that. I like that framing a lot. I've got to ask now, just as someone that's so deep in the world of both advising business owners and looking at our advisor community, like what what else do you find that most advisors don't understand about actually building an advisory business? If you had an advisor as a client, <laughs> you're consulting with them. Like what are the what are the talking points that come up? 
the the biggest problem I see with advisors, they are terrible delegators. And the reason they're terrible delegators is they don't tolerate other people making mistakes and they don't really trust their people. Charles Green wrote a great book called The Trusted Advisor. And in there, there's a thing called the trust formula. And I always highly recommend people, you can just Google trust formula and you'll get it. And that's the whole book, in my opinion, which is intimacy plus competence plus consistency divided by self-interest is how much someone's going to trust you. And when I look at and where I see trust fall down in the wealth management world is that the senior advisors don't believe the junior people are competent. As a result, they don't let them learn to become competent because to learn to become competent, they have to allow the person to make mistakes. And if you make a mistake, the client is obviously going to leave your firm. By the way, it's not true. Right. It's how you handle the mistakes that that is whether the client leaves the firm or not. Most of the time, clients don't care if you make a mistake as long as you fess up to it and you tell them how you're going to fix it. And you have to go to the person that made the mistake and you have to make sure they had a learning experience. You know, one of my favorite philosophers is Buckminster Fuller. And Fuller used to say, there's two things Fuller said I really liked. One is you don't learn less and mistakes are learning opportunities. We don't learn a darn thing by doing it right. We only learn when we do it wrong. And that's how you learn. That's how your people are going to learn. And if you don't allow your people to make mistakes, you can never grow your staff. I had heard this story. I, I don't actually know if it's really true or some like urban legend thing or, or you know proverb that just got propagated. So the version I had heard at least was that you know, Warren Buffett had someone that was managing one of his companies because he's well known for letting his managers have a lot of independence. And, and the guy made a spectacular mistake and poor decision and lost the company $20 million or something to that effect. And so, you know, Warren called him into the office to meet with him to talk about it. And so he, you know, essentially went in and said, you know, like, I'm so sorry. Am, am I, am I fired for this $20 million mistake? And, and Buffer replied, are, are you kidding? I just spent $20 million training you not to make that mistake. You have to stay now. Yeah, that actually, that story actually came out of IBM. Is that out of IBM? Yeah, All it's right. a, yeah, it's actually uh, Watson Jr. did that. Watson Jr. All right. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and it's been told now, it, you know, it's become an urban legend, that story. And now, you know, Watson's been going for so long that nobody even knows who he is. And now it's a Warren Buffett story. But, is it, but it actually is true. You know, and the other thing is you have to realize that there are two types of mistakes. There's a mistake that puts you out of business and there's the rest of the mistakes. And the chance of one of your employees making a mistake that's bad enough to put you out of business is pretty darn slim. <laughs> Even if they blow up a client, like it, it is one client at the end of the day. If they're, if, if they're eventually going to manage 100 clients in your firm, they got to screw up one at some point. So they got to screw up three, four or five. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to you don't want to encourage that, but when it happens, you want to put your arm around them because they already feel bad enough, and you want to say, "What did you learn, and what can we do differently next time to make it?" 
you know, in the early 80s, I had a, a total quality management system and put in my vending company we installed based on W. Ed Deward's 14 points. You should Google 14 points because it's a really good thing. Okay. And one of the things that Demings said was, don't blame the person, blame the system. Don't blame the person, blame the manager. And both are true. People do not want to make mistakes. They want to do a good job. And we often don't have the systems in place to support them in doing a good job. But then we blame them and then we don't want to give them any authority. Right. When the reality is is probably because we didn't set up the system effectively in the first place. Yeah. The vast majority of the time when something goes wrong, it's management's fault. And I say vast majority, I mean like 95% of the time. It's management's fault. It's not the employee's fault. The employee just didn't know what to do. Now, I learned in my vending company that the more detailed and the better support and the better our systems were, the happier our employees were. And that's another thing is that, you know, I get into this conversation a lot with people about what's more important, your employees or your clients? Yes, I love this one. And I would submit it's your employees because your employees are only going to treat your customers as well as you treat them. Well, and particularly in advisory businesses where the only way the business grows beyond us is to have team members that can handle, frankly, lots of clients. Like if, you know, if you're willing to give up one employee that could have managed 100 clients to save one client you're not making a good business decision trade-off. No question. (laughs) The employee has the multiplier effect, as I like to to That's called leverage. Yeah. So other lessons or or reflections of what what you see in business consulting world that maps into financial advisor realm or maybe doesn't get applied well in financial advisor realm? Well, one of the things I would be encouraging people to do is to focus on how many questions they're asking versus how many times they're telling. We think that our clients are coming to us for our expertise. And in a sense, they are coming to us for our expertise, but they're really coming to us to help them solve problems, whatever that is, or take advantage of opportunities. And both are, and I think that we don't focus on the opportunity nearly as much as we do the problems. But, you know, one of the things I I talk about is what I call the Socratic method of management. And Socrates was famous for only teaching through asking questions. There's a sales method called the Sandler sales method. They teach their people only to ask questions. And through questions, you get the answers that help you solve the problems. Because the truth is, most of our clients know what they want to do. They just haven't been able to articulate it. And if we ask the right question, we're going to help them discover that. And if they discover it, they own it, and they're going to be happier. So learning the art of asking a good question is a really important skill. So... Where do you learn to do this? I mean, I guess where in the aggregate do advisors learn to do this, but like, where do you learn to do this, to have this kind of business consulting expertise role, this sort of niche into working with business owners? It, it, it requires to have intense curiosity. If you have intense curiosity about anything, you're going to start learning stuff that the rest of the world doesn't even think about learning. Because you're just going to be curious about what makes it work or not work. Right. 
you know, we were having a problem that a total quality system solved. Because I was curious about ways of solving that problem, I came across TQM. Okay. You know, I had a client that kept talking about, we're going to put lean in our company. We're going to put lean in our company. And I really didn't know what lean was, but I'm curious. So I went out and read five books about lean, which happens to be the Toyota production system. It's how Toyota runs their manufacturing plants. And I started looking under the hood of what TPS actually is or lean. And it's really Deming's 14 points because Deming went to Toyota in the 40s and helped create the quality juggernaut that they are today. And then Toyota took the Deming's 14 points and expanded upon that. Now, with most small businesses, lean is overkill. There's another theory called the theory of constraints. Now, the way I found all this stuff was just curiosity. What else is there? What else is there? I kept hearing about Agile, so I went and became a scrum master because I was curious about it, not because I needed to do it. I recently just became certified for extreme leadership, which is Steve Farber's thing. And his is a radical leap, which stands for love, energy, audacity, and proof. How do you integrate that stuff into a business? We don't use the word love nearly enough in a business context. And we need to. Because love creates energy. Energy creates audacity. Audacity is safety, which goes back to love. And then you need to have proof that the stuff you're doing works. So, you know, if you want to become a business expert, become, you just really need to be curious. That's my, I guess that's my thing. And then find things that you're interested in and go learn about it. And then teach it to somebody you don't know. <laughs> yes. Nothing like trying to teach something to really learn it. Well, that's how I started down this road. When I was, you know, I, again, being a BA in history, my third year in the vending company, I ended up working with the National Vending Association. I volunteered to teach a course I knew nothing about. <laughs> well, that'll force you to learn something about it. Yeah. So I had to go learn it. <laughs> and I've been doing that for years now. <laughs> So as you reflect back, like anything you wish you'd done differently as you built the firm in the, in the direction that you have, at least in the advisory firm stage, and you have plenty of regrets from the early vending days. I, I really wish something happened to me that I wish it didn't happen. I was becoming really, really successful, building a pretty good business. And then when I was 55, I had life-threatening cancer which sort of took me out of the game for five years. And I'm just starting to get back to my old form, even though I'm now 66. And I don't have the energy of 66 I had at 55. Right. So I, I sort of missed that five-year period, which is, you know, the, the most productive part of anybody's career is typically 50 to 60. And I got interrupted. So I'm a little, you know, it is what it is, and I wish it didn't happen. I wish I was a lot nicer when I was younger in my business. I was the worst boss ever to work for. I would scream at people every day. Nothing was my fault. I would blame people all the time. That stayed with me, even though I stopped screaming four years into that career. For the 20 years I owned that business, people thought I screamed at them all the time. Just because my reputation didn't go away. So I wish I didn't do that. Actions have consequences. Interesting. But, I mean, the, from the flip side, as we were saying earlier, like, is there any way around that aside from learning the hard way, having the consequences and going, oh, crap, I think I need to not do that again? 
Well, you know, I, I guess it depends what your makeup was. You know, my, my role model is my father and my father was a screamer. I never took a management course. I never took, a, you know, any human relations courses, really. So I thought that's what you did. Now, I learned that's not what you do, because when you scream at somebody, they're going to sabotage you. <laughs> and I really learned that when we opened our second branch up, because I couldn't be in two places at once. So if I didn't change my behavior, I would have lost my business. It was that simple. Because I had gone from two employees to 25 almost overnight. Mm. There's something that I've come to appreciate more just over the years myself in, in being a business owner and working with business owners, which is just that, that level of self-awareness and self-reflection. You, we often have some bad habits or areas we're not good at you know, that we bring with us for whatever reason. But it's always struck me one of the differences of just the, the people who seem to grow to become successful business owners versus the rest is they, they at least have some self-awareness at some point to like to literally have the realization that you said, like, I'm doing this thing and it is not working well for me. And if I don't change my behavior, I'm going to lose my business. And just being able to be self-aware enough to realize that the problem is you, right? Probably like half humbleness, half self-awareness becomes really crucial or you just never get over the thing that's blocking you. Yeah. I mean, the thing that really is the thing for me that actually switched me was I did a couple of new age seminars when I was 31 years old and they helped me see the world in a different way. And that was the beginning of me with my metamorphosis from being the worst employer of all times to being somebody who was actually pretty good people stay with me for a long, long time. Was there a particular breakthrough or insight? Like what flipped the switch? Well, it's kind of a long, long story, but it's, you know, essentially is that you can have experiences by putting yourself under extreme stress that let you, that help you see the world in a completely different way. Mm. It's sort of like hallucinating without taking a hallucinogenic. Okay. <laughs> Which is a, Interesting thing in itself. Yes, I would imagine so. So what what comes next for you? Well, I'm working on this one-to-many project, which I think can change our industry. I think artificial intelligence is going to be a really interesting thing in our business. I think it's probably 15 or 20 years off before it becomes ubiquitous. And I was actually talking about various about this. I'm trying to write an article that would make some sense. But, you know, we keep saying millennials are digital natives. Millennials really are not digital natives. They, they, the Internet didn't become real until they were in middle school. Yeah, my, my kids are digital natives. You know, my my kids are seven, five, and three. My three-year-old for more than a year now can get the tablet, turn it on, navigate the lock code, open up Netflix, choose his show, hit the Chromecast button, pick the family room TV and not the bedroom TV, and start broadcasting the show. He could do that at two. He couldn't read any of it, but he can, he can navigate that. Right, so, so there's a digital native. Yes. So the next thing coming along is big data and artificial intelligence. And right now, big data and artificial intelligence are really, really, really expensive. And they're not really usable yet. 
But the time is coming, and I think it's coming relatively quickly, probably within 10 or 15 years, where we're going to see micro niches develop in the AI world. So I'm going to be able to put together a program that if you work for Intel, you can do my program working for Intel, and it's going to take you through a process that basically everybody in Intel will likely come across at some point in their life. Or I can do electrical contractors, or you know, it's going to become that micro niche. And I talk about niche management all the time. I think niches are incredibly important because it's how you get to be known and be famous. And one of the things I think about the wealth management business is we're afraid to say no. And by not saying no, we're blocking out the people we should be saying yes to. You know, like Chandra Ranch wrote, wrote this great book called The Year of Yes. And one of the things in there she said became yes to, she said, I now have can say yes to no. I can now say yes to no. Right. A lot of people can't say the word no. Okay. So she yep. learned to say yes to the word no. And we need to do that in our businesses, I think. And we need to know who do we fit best with psychographically, demographically, who are our best. You take that 20%, your best 20%, and you're going to find there's a bunch of similarities between them. Yep. And you want to build a business based on that because for two reasons. One, you have better rapport with those folks. Two, you understand their, their issues. And three, when they come in the door, you're going to know what to do with them within five minutes. Yep. You know, I do these 20-minute free calls with people, and I guarantee that they're going to get at least one good idea over that 20 minutes. Typically, I've given them two good ideas or three good ideas within the first five minutes. Why? Because business problems are about the same across the board. Right. Especially on a strategic basis. Yep. Once, once you know the space, it tends to replicate pretty consistently. I don't even know the industry. I mean, I can learn the industry, but 80% of all businesses are exactly the same. It's the 20% that is the industry expertise. And if you spend five or six hours with somebody in that industry, you're going to learn enough jargon where people are going to think you've been around it forever. <laughs> so what, what else goes in the world of niche management to kind of set this forth as a concept? Well, it really it, niche management is about who do you say yes to and who you say no to in the activities that you do to become well-known in your niche. Do you go to the places that the people in your niche are hanging out? Are you getting on stages to speak to people in the stages where you, you know that your best clients are hanging out? Because speaking on stages is about the best way to get business I have ever found. By the way, that's one of the ways I get those big clients is I, do, I get stages. Okay. And I, and I speak at trade associations and I talk about, you know, as you can imagine, I sort of talk about things from a, a, a viewpoint they may not have considered before. And then people come up and have a conversation and we start to, and we continue from there. Well, and I'm just imagining, as you'd mentioned earlier, you know, I, I, you know two, two financial advisors stroll into an industry trade association to prospect with small business owners. The first one's a traditional advisor and is probably talking about I sell opportunities because I can do the life insurance and how much are you saving in your investment account? Are you diversifying out of your business? And then you walk in as the other one talking clear values and culture for your business, becoming artificially relevant, building predictive dashboards, all these other pieces. Like you're, you're, 
you're talking a completely different language even than any other financial advisor that shows up at that conference. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously a weird duck in the financial advisory business. There aren't many people that, you know, have done what I do. But to me, that's, that's sort of the point of where our industry goes is, you know, what does it look like when there are 300,000 advisors, each of whom has their own specialization and niche and capabilities just like yours and whatever their area of domain and expertise is. And suddenly none of us are in competition with each other. We're like a giant cross referral network of all of us. Cause at the end of the day, there's hundreds of millions of people and only a couple hundred thousand of us. Like there literally aren't enough clients for all of us. If we spread out that broadly. Oh, a ton, I mean, if somebody walks in my office and they're an employee of a large company or just an employee, you know, I, I'm not going to work with them unless they're the owner of the business. I will send them someplace else, likely in my firm, to work with somebody else here who's going to be much better at serving them. Because A, I really don't have a lot of interest in that group. And B, it's not my area of expertise. So I shouldn't be doing it. I stay in a very narrow lane where I have deep, deep knowledge. But, you know, when you end up with, five clients on ongoing basis paying 50 or $60,000 a year. Like the, the math adds up quite well for staying really focused into a niche. It's a nice little retirement business, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, so as we wrap up, this is a show about success. And, and one of the things we always observe is that the, I mean, just the word success means different things, to different people, sometimes different things to us as we go through the stages in our own lives. So, you know, as someone who's built this, successful business and advises successful business owners, how do you define success for yourself? Oh, that's a great question. My personal mission is to do interesting things with interesting people. And if I'm doing that, I'm successful. I love that. My personal mission is to do interesting things with interesting people. Yep. I feel like that was, this is not the first time someone's asked you this question or you've had to consider this before. Like that was a That was very targeted. It's asked very rarely, but I'm a believer in values and mission. And I think people need a personal mission as well as a company mission. You know, our company mission is to help make our clients' lives better. It's not an especially complicated thing, but it's easy to know. It's It's a yes or a no answer. We are or we're not. And if we are, continue doing it. If we're not, we better change. And my personal thing is, I'm kind of a quirky guy. I like quirky people. So for me, interesting people generally are a little bit quirky. I mean, after you see 100 Grateful Dead concerts, you become quirky. <laughs> I would imagine so. Yeah. So, so I, I get into really interesting conversations about really cool things with people on a regular basis. And for me, that's what I live for. Mm-hmm. Well, very cool. Well, thank you for joining us and sharing that on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.